Man, I did this in the first service. Let's just give our worship team a round of applause. Man, they're so good. And so they're here on, on Tuesday nights working real hard. They were here early this morning before anyone else working and rehearsing. So it's just a, a wonderful time to come together and have them uh, lead us in, in worship. So I'm thankful for them. Um, have you ever been in a situation, maybe while traveling, camping, something along those lines, where you found yourself wearing the same clothes after several days? Um, I've been in a situation like that. I was actually in one of those situations um, September of 2015. This was the first time that I was able to go on a missions trip. So at the time, I was living in Indiana, and we were flying from Indianapolis International Airport to Chennai, India. So the missions was in India. And so I was partnering with an organization called One Mission Society, and the the mission was to spend some time with uh, pastors, church leaders, community leaders, just training them on the vulnerabilities of human trafficking and how to prevent that in their, their church and their, their area. So I was able to go with, with my, my partner, Tom, and we just had a great time ministering to, to those individuals. And on the way to India, everything kind of went off without a hitch. I mean, it's a very long trip. In the air alone is about 23 hours or so just in an airplane. So it's a very long flight. So it's a kind of a hard travel, but as far as like logistics go, connecting airports, everything went really, really well. On the way back home, however, it seemed like everything that could have gone wrong went wrong on my way back. So I was with my friend there for most of the time, but he was actually going to stay back another 10 days or so, and I had to come back to the state. So we actually ended up splitting up. So on the way home, I was all by myself traveling international for the very first time. It was very intimidating for me at the time. And so I remember taking a flight from Trivandrum, India to Mumbai, which is approximately two hours. And once I got to the Mumbai airport, it was an eight-hour layover. So here I am, an American in an Indian airport for eight hours with nothing much to do. There was actually one taxi driver. Uh, maybe he was being nice. I have no way of knowing. He said, hey, I could take you to the nearest hotel and you can rest till the plane comes. I decided not to do that because I had no idea what was going to happen. So anyway, after an eight-hour layover and, and really kind of killing uh, a lot of time, I was finally able to get on a flight. And it was a nine-hour flight from Mumbai to Frankfurt, Germany. So once we were there, I think I had a two-and-a-half-hour layover there. And so just prior to boarding, a voice comes across the PA system and says, I'm so sorry, folks, we're going to be delayed about 30 minutes or so. Some of the lights on the plane are malfunctioning. If you've traveled any time at all, you know nothing is ever fixed in 30 minutes. So about an hour and 45 minutes later, I'm finally able to board the plane. And you kind of, you know, when you board a plane, you have that little bit of excitement. And just in a a few moments, 20 minutes or so, we're going to be in the air. Well, an hour and 45 minutes later, we have another voice come across the PA and say, I'm so sorry, but we need everyone to exit the plane. Our lights are still malfunctioning. When we got off the plane, we finally learned that the flight had been canceled altogether. Remember, this is my first time foreign. I'm like, I have no idea what to do. So I finally find the airline. I get a flight from, from Frankfurt back to D.C. So again, that's another nine-hour flight. Once I get there, I got a two-hour flight to Indy, two-hour drive home in my car, and sometime 44 to 46 hours later, I'm in my driveway. Now, keep in mind, I'm still wearing the same clothes that I've been wearing two days prior, like, and it's starting to get pretty bad. Like, I really felt bad for the people sitting next to me on the airplane. I'm sure that it was more than they bargained for. I really felt terrible. <laughs> but, but I remember pulling into my driveway and just being able to drop my bags inside the door, go, go take a shower, and just the first time of like, 
cleaning up and putting on that fresh set of clothes. It just, like the only way I, I know how to define it or describe it, I, I just felt, it just felt new. Like I didn't wear anything special. I think I just put on some, some, some pajama pants and a t-shirt, but it just felt so incredible to be clean, to have these new clothes on. And I, and I can't be certain, but I'm pretty sure the Hallelujah Chorus was ringing in my bathroom as, as I was cleaning up. But anyway, it just, it just felt so good to have the new clothes on. And that's, that's, there's something about newness, isn't there? Putting on the new self, putting on new clothes. And this is what Paul's talking about in our text today. He's not talking about physical clothes, but he's saying, hey, you know what? We have some things in life spiritually. We have some dirty clothes, if you will, that we need to take off, but we need to put on the clean clothes. And this is what Paul's talking about. So we're going to be in Colossians chapter 3, and we're going to dive into verses 12 to 17. And we're in a three-week series where we've just been working through our vision statement here at Highland to connect, grow, and go. And what I want to talk about just for the next few moments is what does it mean for us to take our next step? How, how do we take what we've learned? How do we embrace the vision of Highland and take our next step in our relationship with Jesus? So I want to talk about what it means to put off the old self and put on the new. So let me pray, and then we're going to dive into Colossians 3, 12 to 17. Father, thank you so much for this day and for the time you've allotted for us to be here to worship together with our church family. And it's an honor, and it's a joy. And God, we just pray that, that you're exalted and you are lifted high this morning. Be with our, 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 uh, this part of our worship service where we just worship you in the word. God, open up our hearts to hear and grow and listen to your inspired and errant word. God, we're grateful for this passage and the power that it contains. And God, may we face this with courage and boldness. And God, as we embrace putting off the old man and putting on the new. We ask this in the name of Christ. Amen. So again, we're going to be in Colossians 3, verses 12 to 17. So let's read these verses. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual song, songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So let's just set the scene for a moment. Paul is writing this letter from prison. He's writing in response to some false teachers that are able to have some influence over some of the baby Christians that are part of the Colossian church. And so Colossians, in a sense, is kind of a preventative type of letter where he's, he's encouraging, Paul is encouraging or warning the Colossian believers not to believe the, the smooth-talking false teachers that are in their midst. Or, or they should not buy into their deceptive philosophy. Now, by all accounts, Colossians is a very healthy church where most adhere to the true gospel of Jesus. But these teachers were having enough influence, and it was concerning Epaphras, the, the leader and founder of the Colossian church. It was concerning him enough that he was willing to take a long journey to spend some time with Paul in prison just to gather some wisdom and some mentorship from his pastor friend. 
And so for half of the letter, so for two chapters in our Bible, half the letter, Paul is building this really powerful and solid theological foundation. He's speaking and writing things like, like this. Believe in Christ only for salvation, by faith through grace. He's talking about the preeminent headship of Christ. We see this in chapter 1. He's saying, don't let these false teachers say that you are not believers. You have been justified, declared righteous by God. So for half the letter, he's building this theological foundation. And then we get to chapter 3. And this is when Paul begins to take what he's been writing theologically and says, okay, I don't want just this to be head knowledge. I want this also to be heart transformation. So this is when he gives us some applied theology. This is how we take what we've been learning uh, uh, through, through Scripture, and this is how we apply it to our life. But before Paul gets into talking about putting on the new man, the text that we just read, he says, you know what, part one of this process is taking off the old man. we got to take off the old self. So let's look up a little bit in verses 5 through 9, and let's see what Paul instructs the Colossian believers, instructs us to take off. He says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene, abusive talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. That's, a, that's quite the list that Paul is, is giving these readers. Put off these things. And the moment you see these patterns uh, really present in your life, we must either put them to death, there must be an execution, or we have to put them off all together. Now, of the list that we see, this was an incredible encouragement and warning to first cent- the, the first century church in Colossae. But this is also a great warning and, and encouragement for the 21st century as well for us. This is a call to holiness and sanctification, one that we must pursue with courage and with honesty. So, so why do I say we need to pursue sanctification with courage and honesty? Well, I think it takes courage because of this. I think it takes courage because at some point we have to say, we have to look in the mirror and we have to say, man, I have some dirtiness in my life. I have some qualities in my life that I really don't like. And so when we wake up in the mirror in the morning, like we don't always like what we see in the mirror, do we? In the same sense, we have to, to look in the gospel mirror. Look at what's going on in our heart. What's, what's corrupting my heart? What is it that I just can't seem to let go of? Is it anger? Is it wrath? Is it malice, slander, sexual impurity? If we have those things in our life, we have to have the guts and the courage to look in the mirror and say, man, that I got to get rid of that. Like I have some things in my life that are not pleasant to look at, but I, ha- I have to deal with it. That takes courage, and it takes honesty. Because until we become honest about the sinful issues in our life, repentance will be far from us. So we have to have the courage to look in the gospel mirror and say, yeah, I got some things going on. We have to have the honesty to say, I need to repent of these things. We have to, we have, to have the courage and the honesty to look in the gospel mirror. Now think back with me, if you will, to the time that I was traveling home from India to Indiana. So I could have pretended and I could have done a great job at deceiving myself that I wasn't the one who was smelly and dirty, right? I could have convinced myself, it's everyone else on the airplane. It's everyone else in the airport. It's not me. It can't possibly be me. So at a very surface level, I had to be honest with myself and say, Isaiah, man, it's totally you. Like, you need to change. It's, it's totally, and, and when we get a little bit deeper spiritually, we have to have some honesty and say, I, I got issues. 
I have some sinfulness in my life. We have, we have to address that. Paul says we have to either put it to death or we have to put it off altogether. But that's only step one in a two-step process. Because in addition to putting off the old self, Paul says, I want you to put on the new. Paul understood that if we put off the old self without replacing it with the new, it'd be like going to the hamper again and putting on something else that's already dirty. Like that's what Paul is saying. When we take off the old, we can't be left exposed because what we inevitably do is we just put on another dirty quality. We put on another sinful quality. Paul says we need to avoid that. We do that by putting on the new. And that's when we get to verse 12. See, verse 12, Paul says this. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. So I think we need to start with the why we put on the new. Because so, I think Paul starts with the why. I think it's, it's wise for us to do the same thing. Because Paul does, does give us a qualifier on why the, this pursuit should be present in our life. Paul says this, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. So at the root of it, I want to put on the new man, pursue putting on the new man, because at the end of the day, I am a son of God. I am part of the family of God. That, that's a big deal. That's why we pursue this. We are sons and we are daughters. Therefore, that's our pursuit. Now, Paul says you are chosen, holy, and beloved. Let's think about that phrase from the perspective of the Colossian church, from a, from a Gentile church. So here you have Paul saying, hey, you are chosen, you are holy, you are beloved. Now listen, they, these qualities, these descriptors were used of Israel in the Old Testament. But now here this Colossian Gentile church is hearing that they have been elevated to the same status as the people of God. Because there was a change in the economy of God through the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And because of his salvific work, Acts 13 says the light has shined to the Gentiles, including the Colossian people, including you and I as well. So what was once true of the elect nation is now true of those who come to faith in Christ. Think about that. Think about hearing this as a Gentile, hearing your whole life, hearing from your dad and your grandpa and generations before you saying, we're not, we're not worthy. But now Paul says you're chosen, holy, and beloved. So we pursue Christ's likeness. We pursue putting on the new man because we are part of the family of God. That's why we strive for this. And then Paul says, this is what you should be putting on. And this is when we get to verse number 12. First, Paul says, put on compassionate hearts. Put on compassionate hearts. Really what Paul is saying is put on or have gut-level compassion for others. See, in the King James Version, they translated this as bowels of mercies. One scholar said that bowels was actually associated with the seat of emotion, especially love. So in the first century context, putting on gut-level compassion was a big deal. And in one sense, it actually cut against the grain of society. I mean, think about this for a second. The aged, the maimed, the sickly, what happened to them? That they were pushed to the fringes of society, weren't they? So Paul's saying, I don't want you to be like society. I want, you to, I want you to cut against the grain, and I want you to set the tone and set the pace for what it looks like to have gut-level mercy and compassion for others. Not because they were special, but it's because what, it's what Jesus did. Think about Jesus for a second. Jesus didn't push people to the fringes, did he? He didn't even push people to the, out, to the outside of society. No, he met people on the fringes. 
He met with the woman at the well. He met with the prostitute and the blind man and the lepers. He met with them on the fringes. And likewise, just like Jesus, Paul's saying, Colossian people, you set the tone in gut-level compassion for others. So here's how I look at it for, for our purposes. You know, when we see injustice done or we see a need that needs to be met and it just moves us, we have that, like, that knot in, in our stomach that's just like, I got to do something. When that knot just moves our hands and feet to do something, it moves us to, to give to a missionary. It moves us to, to put some legs on a trip or to minister to someone that, that we really just have a passion for. It moves us to do something. That's gut-level compassion. That's what Jesus did. That, and, that's, and Paul says, hey, I want you to put that on. Put that on. Set the tone in gut-level compassion. So he said, I want you to put on compassionate hearts. And then he says, in addition to that, I want you to put on kindness. I want you to put, put on kindness. That's certainly a, a much-needed article of clothing when we think about taking our next steps in our walk with Christ, putting on kindness. See, kindness here in the text is referring to wine that is harsh, but over time, as it has aged, it's lost its harshness and is now mellow. It's, it's pleasurable. It's enjoyable. It's pleasing to you when you consume it. I was actually talking to a Highland attender who makes his own wine. He says, Isaiah, in the wine industry, we actually have a, a word or a term for that. When the wine is aging and it's losing its harshness, he says, we call that wine approachable. I thought, well, what a great picture. As we develop in our walk with Christ, we should not be getting more cynical and angry and crusty. right? We should be getting mellow. We should be becoming more and more approachable. right? So here, here's what I do in my own heart. So I'm, I'm 34, so I'm not that old, but I'm not, I'm not 20 anymore either. Right? So the things that you know, used to never make me cynical and angry, they kind of do now. And so here's, here's what I'll do. This is, I'm showing you my heart, full transparency. In my heart, I justify it by saying, just because I'm getting older, right? I'm, just, I'm just getting old. That's what happens when we, when we get older, right? We get a little crustier. But Paul's saying, no, no, no. Again, this is a stereotype. No one in the room is like this. This is just, this is just a stereotype. But Paul says, even if, even if that was the case, you can't use that as an excuse. Because as we grow in maturity, as we develop in our relationship with Christ, Paul says we become more approachable. So here's how I look at it. I'm going to share about a story of a man named Ebenezer Scrooge. Now, I just want to say this. I'm going to give some spoilers out. Right? If you've not seen the movie or read this 200-year-old novel, I'm sorry. I'm going I'm to give some, some spoilers. But as we see the beginning part of this, this story, Ebenezer Scrooge is totally, his life is ransacked with greed. It's motivated by greed. Everything that he does tries to fuel his, his craving to have more. And it's destroyed every single relationship in his life, hasn't it? He doesn't even like Christmas. I don't understand how that happens, but he doesn't even like Christmas anymore. And so over time, it just destroyed his life. And, and one Christmas Eve, he's, he's visited by the three Christmas spirits who show him the true meaning of Christmas. And over the course of the story, we see him taking off or putting off his greed and putting on kindness. Now let's flash forward to the, to the end of the story. Who, who is who's, who's Scrooge at this point? He's not Ebenezer Scrooge at the end. He's Uncle Scrooge. And he's hanging out with Tiny Tim because he's approachable. right? He's, he's no longer a man consumed with greed. He's taken that off and he's put on kindness and he's approachable. He's a joy. He's a pleasure to be around. Now there's a lot in our culture, moving, moving it to, to our context, there's a lot in our culture that makes us cynical and angry and cruel. And Paul says, don't buy into that. Be approachable. As you develop in your walk with Christ, put on kindness. Be more and more approachable. 
And then Paul says, in addition to compassionate hearts, in addition to kindness, how about humility? Let's throw humility on top of this. And if you're reading this in the first century, you're probably a little bit angry. It's a a little bit abrasive that someone would have the audacity to call us out on our, our pride. You know, calling us to be humble, calling us into humility. Because this was a term, this was an idea, humility, that was, that was an idea, or it, it kind of gave us the impression that we're weak or even cowardly. But all throughout Scripture, we see there's a call to embrace humility. It was, and it was Christ who redeemed the attribute of humility. And I love that. I love that something that was looked at so terribly in society was redeemed for something so beautiful and powerful by Christ. And he was humble. Right? Matthew eleven twenty nine 29 says Jesus was lowly in heart. And we see Jesus' humility displayed in Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. When Paul says that he humbled himself by leaving heaven, taking on the form of a servant, living a sinless life, and being obedient even to death on a cross. That is humility. See, humility simply is elevating someone else's needs above our own. Think about this in the context of relationships. What happens in your relationship when you elevate yourself above the person you're in a relationship with? It's, there's friction, right? There's some tension. But what happens when we can elevate their needs above our own? It brings some peace. You know, one, one pastor actually said, humility is the antidote of self-love, which is the poison of all relationships. How true. So if we're experiencing tension in a relationship, May we embrace or pursue or try to put on humility. Let's elevate their needs above our own needs. This is one of the greatest Christian virtues is walking in humility, and it totally reflects the heart of Christ. So Paul says, put on compassionate hearts, put on kindness, put on humility. And then he says, I want you to put on meekness. Now, I think meekness is a word that needs some attention because there are some misconceptions about what meekness is. In fact, I was reading an article in Our Daily Bread, and they were, they were using uh, an illustration from a book that was being written by a guy named J. Upton Dixon. The book that he was writing at the time was called Cower Power. And he was also, Mr. Dixon was also founding a group of submissive people called Doormats. Dependent organization of really meek and timid souls, if there are no objections. Their motto was, the meek shall inherit the earth if that's okay with everybody. The organizational symbol was a yellow traffic light. This was his idea of meek. I'm just going to lay down. I'm just going to be trampled on my feelings and emotions. I I matter nothing. I'm just going to lay down. But nothing could be further from the truth when describing meekness. I was talking to a lady after the first service. She said, you know, my definition of meekness is velvet steel. I'm soft on the outside, but I'm rock hard on the inside. Right? I have the softest about me. I have this, this approachability about me. But man, I have strength. And that's really what meekness is. It's strength under control. It's not doormat. It's strength under control. Now think of it this way. This is not an original analogy, but one that I find helps me when, when understanding and learning about meekness. Think about a horse and a horse's rider. Right? The horse has impressive size and strength and speed. And it could do anything that it wants to do yet it submits itself to the authority of the rider, to the master, right? It jumps, it runs, it trots, all at the command of the rider. And it could, do, it could buck the rider off and run and forget about him, and it wouldn't even matter. But yet he submits himself to the authority of the rider, of the master. 
And as Christ's followers, meekness is us doing the same thing. God, you've given me abilities. You've given me talents. You've given me strength. But I'm going to submit that back to your authority. That's what meekness is, giving ourselves and submitting ourselves to Christ. So what does meekness look like in the context of relationships? Meekness looks like this. Meekness means I'm going to receive some of the hurt rather than inflicting hurt. Meekness says if, if, I, if anyone's going to get hurt here, it's going to be me. If someone's going to lose, let it be me. Not in, as a doormat, but I'm not interested in just being right. I'm interested in reconciling a relationship. That's what meekness is. It's like I'm, I'm submitting myself to Jesus, and if, and if someone has to pay, I want it to be me. Not as a doormat, but by submitting myself to Christ and saying, I, I want reconciliation in my relationships. I just want peace in my life. Meekness is powerful. It's strength under control. And Paul says, in addition to compassionate hearts, kindness and humility, put on meekness. And then we get to the final article of clothing in the text, and that's patience. Now listen, patience is shown to us so clearly in our relationship with our Heavenly Father. Because God showed us perfect patience through Christ and it's a virtue, especially in the context of relationship, that we need to display to one another as well. See, having patience means we're looking at a situation, looking at a relationship through the lens of the gospel, and then allowing that, if we've been sinned against, allowing that to minimize our anger. If I can say it this way, it prevents us from flying off the handle, right? Because anger in and of itself isn't sinful. Paul says you can be angry, but don't sin. Right, so we see righteous anger and sinful anger. Paul's saying, hey, don't fly off the handle. Don't allow your anger to, to fuel you into sinful behavior. This is what Paul is saying, and I think there's a reason why. If we, if we look at 1 Timothy 1.16, we see Paul sharing this with a young pastor, Timothy. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. So why, why is the barrel emptied on us being able to fly off the handle or be impatient with other people? Because we, as sinful people, deserve God's wrath. Yet through Christ, he displayed perfect patience by sending his son to die on a cross that we deserve and then came back to life three days later and will rescue all who believe in him. That's why we can't be angry. Because I cannot be offended more than I've ever offended God with my sinfulness. Right? I cannot be offended as much as I've offended God. And therefore, I can't allow my anger to control me by being impatient and flying off the handle towards someone. So Paul says, put on patience. Notice how all these work really well in the context of relationship. Any relationship, marriage, co-workers, our neighborhoods, mother, daughter, father, son, what doesn't matter. It works so well in the context of our relationship. So we're looking nice, right? We've got all these nice clothes on. So we're looking good. We got our new outfit. We got on the new self. And just to kind of round this out and, and conclude our time together, I just want to bring us, a few, uh, bring us a few concluding thoughts. Here's my first one. Putting on the old self and putting on the new allows forgiveness to be a regular part of our life. When we are putting off the old and putting on the new, a great byproduct is forgiveness. Paul says in verse 13, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, Forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, you also forgive. So if we have put on these articles of clothing that we've just spent time exploring and diving into, then granting and pursuing forgiveness is going to be an easier endeavor for us. But listen, if, if anger and bitterness are still clinging so closely to our heart, forgiveness is impossible. 
It's not easy to forgive in the first place, but it's almost impossible when those things are clinging so closely to our heart. So as we dive into putting off the old and putting on the new, man, I pray that this leads us to have a joy in granting and pursuing forgiveness and looking at others through the lens of the gospel. That's my, that's my first concluding thought. Here's my second concluding thought. Putting on the new man only works if it's done in love. So we've talked about our outfit. We've talked about the new clothing that we're wearing. So if I'm, if I'm to go out and I'm going to wear a suit, I'm, I'm not going to leave the house if my belt's not on. Right? I, want, I want that to t- kind of tie all of this together. Because if I have all these nice clothes but I'm not wearing a belt, it just looks incomplete. And so love then would be like the belt that kind of holds all of this together. This is what Paul says in verse 14. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Right? Paul says we have all these nice clothes. Let's allow love to be the motivator. Let's allow our, 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 let, let us be rooted in the reality that we are part of the family of God. And let love be the barometer in which we're able to gauge the other articles of clothing. So if I'm not having compassion like I should, I need to check how my love is for the Lord and how my love is for other people. If I'm not as kind as I should be, how's my love? Is my love tank full or is it empty? I need to, I need to gauge that, that love is, is how I do that. Because if, if I'm not loving others, if I'm not loving the Lord and loving others well, then there's no possible way I can put on all these articles of clothing and honor the Lord with that. I need to make sure that I'm loving well. Love is what binds everything together. Here's my last concluding thought. Putting on the new self leads to a life of peace and worship. Notice how Paul concludes the paragraph in the text. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So when a follower of Christ puts on the new man, peace dwells in our heart. It leads to unity with one another. Now, we can conclude then that putting on the new man is an act of worship that leads to greater worship. It leads to greater worship because it develops and cultivates unity among brothers and sisters in a local church. It leads to greater worship because our sole focus then is to glorify God in everything that we do. What did Paul say in 1 Corinthians 10.31? Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do to the glory of God. And then we see in Colossians 3.17, whatever you do in word or deed, do for the glory of Jesus Christ. Word, deed, eating, drinking, whatever you do, you do to the glory of God. So I know some of you are getting ready to put some hot wings in the slow cooker for the Super Bowl party. Do it in the name of Jesus for the glory of his name. Some of us are, are, are moms and dads. We're chasing little ones all over, and that can be a stressful time. And, and, and mom, maybe you're at home, and you just can't wait for your husband to come home to give you some relief. Do it in the name of Jesus for his glory. And husband, maybe you're having some, some difficult times at work. Do it in the name of Christ. Whatever we do, we start our car up. When we take a sip of our Mountain Dew or coffee or whatever we like to drink, Paul says, whatever you do, do to the glory of God. And that comes from, that's a byproduct of putting on the new man. Putting on, it's, a, it's an act of worship that leads to greater worship. Right? That's what we do. So as we think of next steps this morning, I pray that we have a pursuit, we have a hunger, we have a desire to put off the old man and put on the new. 
This allows us to have unity, greater worship. Man, just leads to a God-glorifying life. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for your word. You are good. Your word is true. And I pray, God, that we can experience life change from it. I pray that we have the courage to look at the old man and the sinful patterns and hang-ups we have in our own life. And may we have the courage and honesty to say, God, I want to submit this to you. And then, Lord, may we pursue putting on the new man. Lord, this is not an easy endeavor, but one fueled with your spirit, God, is possible. So, God, we just want to just ask for your spirit to guide and lead. May we stand on your word. And, God, may you be glorified in everything that we do. We ask this in the name of Christ. Amen.